See Galatians 3, and uh, I'm going to read from verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ, Jesus, until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And what I, I, I hope and pray that happens today is that we get a slightly firmer grip, or indeed a much firmer grip, on the promises of God to us in Christ. And we're a little bit more free from holding on to a sense of our own performance for a sense that all is well with us. We've seen, haven't we, that Paul in this letter to the Galatians is arguing against relying on rules and our own performance to to get in with God and to stay in with God and and as a way to be acceptable to others. And and so today, as he continues to kind of unfold some of this argument, he he gives us the backstory of, uh, of the law of God in our faith. We see where the law came from, what what role the law has and, and, and when it came. And it might surprise you that it's not as central as people might think. Rules and laws are not as central uh, as we might think. What do you think? Think about this for a moment. What do you think is first in God's mind? Rules that we've got to keep or promises to bless? What, what does God care about more? Is it rules or is it promises that most shapes how you relate to God? It's a key question of of what we think about God and so therefore how we do or we don't approach him and relate to him. Is it on the basis of rules and laws and doing the right things or is it on the basis of promises from God? What is far more central than the law of God for us are the promises of God for us. See, rules in their nature have to be obeyed, don't they? That's what laws and rules are about. And promises by their nature are to be believed. And nothing more than that. At essence, Christians are people who receive promises from God and not law. Now listen, this is a key battleground for every Christian. Today, Am I believing? Am I holding on to the promises of God? Or am I relying in some way on my own performance or how well I'm doing? 
What is it? Where is it my mind and my heart goes when I think about that? It's part of the struggle for all of us, knowing how to live in this freedom that we have in Christ every day. It's, it's, it's a battleground. It's also a battleground for every church. Are we keeping the main thing, the main thing? Are we centering all that we do on God's promises to us in Christ? Or are we giving other rules, other markers, other things that people have to do in order to belong and, and making those things too prominent? If we're to stay united as a church, together, people from many different backgrounds and cultures, then we need to keep Christ and his promises central in our hearts and in our lives. And we need to be very clear on that. Now listen, the the promises of God are littered through this passage seven times, in fact, in what I just read. We we hear a direct reference to the promises of God. See, Christians are fundamentally people of promise and not performance. And, And to benefit from promise, you do nothing other than, I guess, taking it seriously enough to believe it and, and take up the offer of it. But the thing is, we find it hard to believe the promises of God, can't we? We can wonder, God, are your promises real? Are they reliable? Are they, are they at work in my life in, in this situation? When, when it feels like life is falling apart in some way, or, or maybe in every way imaginable, I think all of us naturally ask questions of of God and his promises and his goodness then, don't we? Maybe they don't seem so real. But the Bible says this. It says that however many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And this passage shows us how that works. That these promises of God to us in Christ, they're legit promises, they're unchangeable, they're not conditional on us, and they guarantee for us life to the full. Now, the way that Paul starts to explain this to us in, in verse 15 is he uses this one example from ordinary life to help us get uh, this about the promises of God. And he calls it a human covenant in verse 15. We would call it a will, a last will and, and testament. It's when someone makes a will about what they want to happen to their pro- property and their possessions after they die. Uh, and they complete that document with all of the legal formality that you have to. And when that's happened, that will is set in stone and that cannot be changed. So when they die, that is what must happen uh, to, to their money and their possessions. No matter what anyone else thinks about it, no matter how little people like it or not, and it leads to all kinds of disputes, doesn't it? Someone else can't come along later and set that aside or, or add to it or just do away with that in any way. No, the law demands that that will is done. So that's our example. As we saw last week, Paul's tapping into the ancient man of Abraham, to prove to us Christians, listen, it's all about faith. It's all about believing the promises of God from first to last. And he returns to Abraham here. He says, when God made his promises to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus, he did it with all of the proper formality in that time and place. There was this covenant that was established between God and Abraham, confirmed in a ceremony. Those promises, like the will, are inked in. They're inked into history and they cannot be changed. It has been duly established. And so that means that not even a law that comes along much later and the law that was given to uh, and through Moses could change or affect the promises that were given all the way back to Abraham. See, the timeline is important. The promises are given to Abraham um, hundreds of years before any laws are given through Moses. It's described in verse 17 as 430 years. It's referencing the period of, uh, in, in Egyptian slavery from Abraham's grandson Jacob until Moses. 
for hundreds of years, generation after generation and generation, the promises of God stood to his people. They believed in it. They passed it down from one to the next. They trusted God for it. They hoped for it. It was a long time before any law of God was given to his people. So when that law does come, it doesn't set aside that covenant. It doesn't set aside those promises that were previously established by God. It doesn't cancel them or do away with them in any way. In fact, the law was given while those promises were waiting to be delivered on. We're going to come back to that in a moment. See, the time for the delivery of the promise only came when Christ dropped up on the scene 1,500 years after Moses. So the promise was given to Abraham 2000 BC, but verse 16, it wasn't only given to Abraham, it was given to his offspring. It's called the seed in this passage. His offspring. Now that could refer to like the whole of his family tree and kind of everyone that comes in the future of his whole family, even a nation, but it can also mean one person. And in verse 14, 17, Paul says that's the true meaning. This is about one person, the seed of Abraham, who is Christ. These promises that were given to Abraham are given to Christ. Not only that, but verse 19 tells us the promises are actually also about Christ. He is the one who delivers on them. He is the one who answers their call. He's the one who fills them up. He's the one who who solves them. And we're going to see the the nature of the promises in a moment. But the key thing to realise is, whatever it is, it comes to us too and through Christ, the offspring of Abraham. Now this matters to you because this means they are straight up promises from God. There's no conditions. There's no nasty little small print that you've got to be aware of. You know you get those, I don't know if you get them, but you know like the emails from like a Nigerian prince offering you millions of pounds if only you'll provide your bank details and your national insurance number and your address and your mother's maiden name and all of these other security details and like... It offers something, but there's so much that you have to give uh, to, to, to get what is offered. That's, that's not what this kind of promise is. No, this is all about Christ. It's to him and it's through him. It's who he is. It's what he's done. It's what he's now doing and what he will one day complete. And so it's totally delivered on by him. Synced into history through his life and his death, death and his resurrection and his ascension. This promise comes to us through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. See, if you've got a timeline, the, the promise is given to Abraham, and then the law is given uh, hundreds of years later to, to Moses, and then 1,500 years, Christ arrives, and, and he delivers on it and answers the promise uh, and, and fills it up and is the, is, is the solution to it, and then we come 2,000 years after Christ here today. And so we can see that Christ has and can deliver on the promises of God. And we know that this is free to me. There's no condition. There's no strings attached. There's nothing I've got to do because he has done it. How do you get hold of this yourself? Look look at verse 22. It's quite simple. It's putting your faith in Jesus. The promise that is secured by Christ can be given to you through belief in him. That's all he asks you to do. The, the, the way that it's described is that the promise was graced to Abraham long before Christ came. It's, it's, it's an offer of God's grace, the promise, and, and it's an offer that is still extended to us by God's grace today. It's the nature of promises to be believed. 
will you believe? And if you do, and if you have, what does the promise offer you anyway? What, you say, well, what, what do I win? Well, in, in verse 18, Paul describes it as an inheritance, and, and that's kind of appropriate given the imagery of a will, isn't it? Because you only get an inheritance when the person who made a will ha- has died and chooses to bless you through their death. So too, this inheritance comes to us, doesn't it? Upon and through the death of Christ, whose will it was to bless us by dying for us. Well, this, this calling it this inheritance is just like a shorthand for this. It's quite expansive and big idea in the Bible of, of life with God and under God's blessing in a particular place. So, so Abraham was, was offered this land of promise where he would receive God's blessing and God would be with him and through him a blessing to the nations. And, and we receive this inheritance now as Christians in the here and now of this world. That's the place. But with the spirit of God coming to live with us and in us and bring the blessing and the life of God into this old world, in, in, into our bodies and, and our lives just now. And the inheritance in the future will be our full and forever experience of God's presence with us in God's place in a renewed and perfected world living forever. That those, that's the promise of God. That's his offer to be received just by believing. I think the reason we find it hard to believe the promises of God as Christians or, or to believe that they are for us or, or will come true for us is because we get confused in the timing of these things. The timing of when God will deliver on his promises and, and we forget when our insur- inheritance policy will, will pay out, if you like, uh, amidst the perplexity and the pain of life in this world and, and the suffering we walk through and maybe the, the physical health and the relational breakdown and, and the grief and, and whatever else it might be, the financial troubles or, or wars or whatever else it is. We forget that God promises to make all things new, that God promises to make sense of every situation, God promises to bring everything fully and finally under the Lordship of Christ, but that day is not yet delivered on. What we have now is a deposit of the Spirit. We experience the inheritance in past. We, part, we, have, we have hope that goes beyond the grave. We have this new life of God's presence with us in the valley of the shadow of death. But the final payout is yet to come. And so we're a bit like Abraham. We're given these promises and we've got to look forward to their final and full um, completion and fulfilment. They're locked away in our heart and they've been duly established for us in history and and, and we know they are because we see that in the person and the life of Christ and yet we look forward to when they are finally and fully delivered on. God is not slow in keeping his promises as we might think. His promises are certain and they're secure in Christ and believing them has stood the test of time for many a Christian. So where we're struggling with that, the encouragement is to hold your nerve. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. For putting your faith in Christ, that policy will pay out in the end. For as many as the promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So if if it really is all about promises... You might say, well, what place then do laws and and rules have in the Christian life then? Are they the opposite of the promises of God? Right question, because those are the two questions that follow in in this text and uh, are asked about the law of Moses. Moses. Look at verse 19. Why was the law given? Verse 21. Is the law opposed 
to the promises of God. It depends how we understand the law and what function it plays, doesn't it? Now, now, when Paul writes about the law here, it's used in this kind of particular sense, referring to the rules that God gave to the nation of Israel through Moses uh, three and a half thousand years ago after he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He'd set them apart as his special people and they were to live in a distinctive and a special way in the world of the time to put on display the, the, the character and, and, and the life and the goodness of God. And so God gave them these laws as a revelation of his goodness to them. As, as these, this, these laws that would restrain evil amongst them and keep it under control to some extent and a guide for how they could live faithfully as God's people in that time. But here's the thing, what we've already seen, the law was given after the promise was made but before it was delivered on. It's given in that intervening time, promise made, promise delivered, law comes in the middle. The promise is all around it. So let's keep the law in its place in our hearts and minds. Verse 19, it's specific. Uh, the law was given until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. That's Christ. Verse 23, it was given until the faith that was to come would be revealed. I think you can think of the relationship between law and promise like this. Imagine you wake up early in the morning so early that it's still dark and you go down to your lounge and you sit down in your favourite armchair and you, you just want to spend some time reading so, so you flick on the, the light switch by you your, your little lamp by your armchair you sat there by the window reading by the light of your lamp half an hour later the sun has risen and the sun is pouring in through the window and, and it's doing that so brightly that the lamp is now redundant, and so you just switch it off. There's nothing wrong with the lamp. The lamp was good for a time, but now it has served its purpose, and the time has passed. The true light is here. The true light of which it was just this pale and really weak imitation is now shining. The one to whom the promise referred had come, and the time for, and its time and its purpose is done. The law of God was given for a time. It was given for a purpose and it was good. And it is good. And it was useful. But when Jesus comes, its time is done. The true light is now shining. The law of God that was given to Moses and recorded in the Old Testament of our Bibles does not apply to people today because Christ has come. Christ delivered on the promises of God. The law of God might still shine a light on people and it might bring conviction and awareness as they see in it God's character and his goodness reflected and they see their own failings and their own darkness. And in doing that, it may draw them to Christ. But it does not apply. That starts to explain why the law was given and what purpose what its purpose was. In verse 19 we read that it was added because of transgressions until Christ came. See, God's law does not make us good. It does not bring life. But it shows us the difference between right and wrong. And, and it shows us what is wrong with us. So in, in, in Romans, Paul writes that we wouldn't know what sin was had it not been for the law of God calling it out and showing it to us. In fact, you could say that the law of God increases our problem that's what laws do for those in the wrong, doesn't it? Imagine you're driving through a built-up area 
late in the night, and, and you know it's probably only safe to drive at 30 miles an hour, but, but you, you, you know, it's late at night, not many people around you are in a rush, so you're going at 40. Now, now, that's probably an irresponsible thing to do. But as soon as you see a, a road sign that says 30, this is a 30 area, it's no longer just irresponsible what you're doing, but it's also now disobedient as well, isn't it? Because you're not following and obeying the rules that are put before you. See, law turns a moral wrong, sin, into a transgression. That's someone who breaks the law, who goes over a boundary. And so that law acts like a mirror to us. It, it not only reflects the goodness and the perfection of God as his character is reflected in it, but then it also reflects my own badness and my own imperfection as I don't match up to who God is and what he's like. And to some extent, it restrains wrongdoing because it, it says what's wrong and then it, it comes with certain punishments for, for what is wrong and, it, and, and, and provides appropriate penalties. But, but Paul is clear, the law was not the first deal and it's certainly not the final deal. And so that, that, that's why it's reflecting the fact that it kind of, it's mediated through angels and through Moses, whereas the promise comes straight from God to Abraham directly. The law of God makes no sense unless you also have the promises of God to, deliver on, uh, to be delivered on by Christ. Lord God makes no sense unless the promises of God are delivered on by Christ. It is always to be understood and interpreted by reference to him and to his life, which fulfills it, which completes it, which embodies it, which lives it out. And so that's why the law of God, uh, verse 21, is not opposed to the promises of God. The law is not able to impart life or, right, or the righteous perfection of God, but it has a role coming before Christ to prepare the way for the promise of God to be delivered on. Paul describes this, the role, role in two ways. He describes like a prison guard in verse 22, 23, and a guardian in verse 24. Like a prison guard, he says, it locks up everything under the control of sin. It holds in custody until the faith that was to come is revealed. It's like a prisoner being held in prison, uh, awaiting their trial on remand, waiting the court date. The law keeps us in custody by calling out uh, our wrong for what it is and confirming we've fallen short, confirming we're lawbreakers, so we're kind of in prison waiting for our court date. But the great news is for the Christian, when the court date comes, we're declared innocent and we're free because Christ has dealt with it for us. So the law kind of had that role in the past. And then it's also a guardian. This is the, the, um, the image of, of an employee of a rich family back in that day who, who was assigned to look after the children until they became adults. And, and that employee was to really strongly discipline them and, and train them and keep them in check. Today you might think of like, I don't know, in a royal family, I guess they have like a minder for each uh, prince and princess. And they're assigned to look after that young prince, to discipline him and train him in, uh, in what is good and right. So when that prince grows up to be an adult, he knows what it's like to live uh, and act as a royal. The Lord disciplines and strongly trains people toward what is right and good uh, in the time before the promise was delivered on. But it never changes people's heart. It just shows them how much they need to change. It's like the petrol gauge in your car. It tells you how empty your tank is, but it doesn't put any fuel in. It doesn't sort it for you. And it was never, ever given as a means for anyone to save themselves, but only to convince us of our need for rescue and to bring us to faith in Christ. Listen, the, the law of God is not bad, but we need to see it, its place, and we need to not use it wrongly. 
The law of God was never a means by which people might prove their own righteous perfection and goodness. It was never a way by which people might attain life by themselves. But nobody appreciates the good news of who Christ is. Nobody comes to put their faith in him and see what he has done for them until in some sense the law and the perfection of God has shone, on their light, uh, shone a light on them and exposed them. And they're humbled and they realise they need saving. It is only those who realise they are sick who make a doctor's appointment. It is only those who are aware and convicted of their moral shortcomings who will ever believe the promises of God and trust in Christ. So if you feel conviction that all is not well with you, like there's a problem somewhere that you're not morally okay, then realise that is a gift of God's grace and let it lead you to your only saviour. In fact, God's word, his perfect law, does that in the life of the spirit-filled Christian all the time. As, as you open God's word and, and his word of life speaks to you and you see God's perfection and his righteous standards in his word, I become aware of the remaining sin in me and how far I fall short and, and, and how I am not like that. But I'm also drawn, therefore, to the perfection of Christ and to his free gift of grace and the forgiveness and life that is on offer to me in him. And again, I receive by faith and take hold of Christ delivering on God's promises for me. Each of us has a choice today. We're going to seek to stand on our own two feet, in our own confidence, our own power, our own, our own performance, our own goodness, what we can achieve ourselves. Whether it's by law-keeping or rule-keeping or performing or whatever else it is. Is that what we're going to hold on to? Or we just let go of that for a moment and let's just hold on to Christ by faith. Hold on to the promises of God. Believe again. Trust again. Hope again. Despite how it looks and how it feels, whatever's going on in our life, believe yet God's, if God has said it, it's got to be true. If Christ has promised it, I can believe it. Everything that God has promised, it is a yes in Christ. It is delivered on. It is given to me and it is mine. And in due course, if I don't give up and if I, if I hold on to that faith and that belief and that just simple trust, then one day I will have my fill. Once and for all, it will be delivered to us forevermore. If only we will believe what God has promised and what he promises us today. And we pray that we will believe him and trust in him. Lord, thank you that you are a God who makes promises. Thank you that you are a God who keeps promises. Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross to keep your father's promise of new life to me. Lord, help us to believe in your promises. Help that to be the thing which keeps us day by day. Knowing that you are good for your words, that we can trust you. We don't have to do it ourselves. And help us to help one another to know and believe and hold on to these promises. We praise you. Amen.